Well, who doesn't like a good storm? <laughs> you know, I was talking to somebody just the other day, and we were both saying how we, we enjoy watching storms. You know, I, I can even remember back growing up that I was always fascinated with watching the wind, watching the rain, watching the lightning. There's something awe-inspiring about a storm. I know that's not everybody's cup of tea, but there is something awe-inspiring about it. Years ago, in my college years, I was in Louisiana at the time, and some friends of mine and I decided to, on this stormy day, to go to the beach. Like I said, I was in my college years. We went, and of course we didn't get in the water, but you know, we watched on the beach the storms, and I remember watching just these little cloud systems would move across the water, and they'd bring wind and rain, and they would kick up the waves, and then they would pass on, and you'd have us peace. But then another little storm system would come along, and it would do the same thing. It would kick up the wind, kick up the rain, and, and kick up the waves a bit, and then it would have peace. And just watching that was, was fun. It was fun for me. But you know, storms aren't always fun. Just in recent months, you remember the tornadoes that ripped through nearby, did some damage. Just this past Friday, with the wind and the rain and the snow and the slush, it also did some serious damage. Some of you were directly affected by that. You know, life has storms. Storms are a good metaphor for life. Storms in this sense would be people or events or situations that derail us. That would be a life storm. You know, you're living your day in and day out, you're doing your thing, and then suddenly something happens, someone steps in and just derails everything. Ever been there? And these could be big things. You could get the phone call that causes your heart to sink. Something's happened with the family. Something's happened with so-and-so. Illness could be a big storm. You could be on the news and, dare I say it, a pandemic strikes. It's a storm. But you know, storms can come in small ways, too. A temptation could be a storm. An interruption to your day. You've had a plan in place and something happens and plans out the window. Ever had a day like that? Suddenly derailed. Life has big storms and small storms. And you know, the storms of life can be sudden. Or they can build over time. Everything could be fine one minute and then one small frustration and just sets off the day. Or everything could be fine until small thing after small thing after small thing after small thing till blow up. We can't control life's storms but we can control our response to the storm. How do we respond to the storms in life? How do we respond in faith rather than in fear? Read with me again. I'm going to read verses 35 and 36. The scripture says, On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. 
Your first point this morning from our text is this. During the course of life, expect storms. I think we're having some technical difficulties. I apologize for that, so I'll just repeat myself. During the course of life, expect storms. Now, let's, let's set our story here in the context we've been reading in. What have we covered in the book of Mark so far? Really briefly, remember all the way back to chapter 1, we covered John the Baptist showing up on the scene, baptizing people, and declaring that the Messiah is coming. And then we saw Jesus show up on the scene. And we saw that he came, and he was tempted, and he was driven to the wilderness, and he came back and he was declaring a message, the message that said... The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Then we saw Jesus doing miracles. We saw him teaching. We saw him casting out demons. We saw him, for lack of a better word, get into fight with the Pharisees. We saw him having conflict with his own family. And then the last couple weeks, we've seen his parables. And we've seen that he has been teaching all along that same message The kingdom of God is at hand. We're still in this section today that theologians call Jesus' later Galilean ministry. We're still there, and we're coming out of the parables from chapter 4, and we're entering the last part of chapter 4 and chapter 5, four specific events where Jesus performs great miracles. His miracles are about to be taken up a notch. Today we have a storm. In the coming weeks, we're going to have a man possessed by multiple demons. We'll see a woman who was so sick, she spent everything she had to try to be healed and still was not. And then finally, we're going to encounter Jairus' little girl who, before Jesus could get to the house, dies. All of these instances, if we take them in the context of the parables, they come right out of Jesus' teaching of the kingdom of God. What does that mean? That means that the kingdom of God is breaking into the world and undoing evil. The kingdom of God is breaking into the world and it's undoing the evil that is there. Now we know what the kingdom of God is. It's Christ's reign on earth. It's happening right now spiritually in the hearts of believers, in the hearts of you and I. That's the kingdom of God. We make up the kingdom of God, Christ's reign on earth That's what it is. But what does the kingdom of God do? It undoes evil. The kingdom of God undoes evil. And that's what we're going to see in the next several stories, starting with our text today. Verse 35 says, on that day. Now we have to remember what happened. What happened the last couple of weeks? Well, here... After a long day of teaching, Jesus has been teaching parables, you remember. He's telling his disciples now, it's time to leave. He says, let's go to the other side. It's time to leave. Now, we're not given a reason why. Jesus just decides it's time to move on. Interestingly enough, he tells them, let's go across to the other side. The other side of what? The other side of the Sea of Galilee. And interestingly about that, the other side of the Sea of Galilee is where the Gentiles live. but you're going to have to hang on to your seat next week for that one. For our purposes today, Jesus just simply says, it's time to go. Now, you may remember, Jesus was teaching the crowd from a boat. And his disciples, the 12, were with him in the boat. And most of them are experienced fishermen. 
They set out in this boat across the Sea of Galilee. And just to let you know, first century boats could hold about 15 men. They're about 26 and a half feet long, and then at the widest in the middle, they're about seven and a half feet wide. So it was a decent sized craft. It wasn't your little John boat, it was a decent sized craft. And there's two interesting details that are given to us in the text at the end of verse 36. First of all, it says that um, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. Do you see that little phrase, just as he was? What does that mean? Well, to the best of our understanding, that means that they just up and left after his teaching. They didn't go back to the shore to grab a snack, quick trip to the bathroom. They just left. Jesus was done teaching, and they got out of there. The other detail we see at the end of verse 36 is this, and other boats were with him. Now, it's presumed, presumed that in that boat, like I said, the 12 disciples were with Jesus, and that makes sense as we look at how the story progresses. So who are in these other boats? A great answer that you love to hear, I don't know. Could be other disciples. You know Jesus had more disciples than just the 12. It could be people from the crowd who had boats. It could be fishermen. We don't know. And the other question is, what happened to these other boats? Again, we don't know. As we get into chapter 5, it doesn't appear that they make it to the other side. So presumably they stayed on the first side. Maybe they were driven back by the storm. We just, we just don't know. But you know what is interesting about details like this? And there's more details in this story. Little things that really have nothing to do with the story. But what's interesting about those details is they give strong evidence that this is eyewitness testimony. When you see details like this, when you hear an eyewitness describe something that happened, because of the way the brain works, they remember things that weren't a part of the event. That's evidence to an eyewitness testimony. What we're seeing here happened. What we're seeing here was recorded by Mark, who likely recorded what Peter told him happened. Peter, of course, being an eyewitness. This gives us evidence to the validity of the Bible. So that's why one of the neat things we see here are these little details. So they're off across the Sea of Galilee, but they don't make it very far, and disaster strikes. Look at verse 37. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Now, the text tells us that a great windstorm arose. That word for windstorm is lilaps in the Greek, and it literally means whirlwind or hurricane. Now, the Sea of Galilee is 696 feet below sea level. It's in a basin that's surrounded by mountains, and the area that it's situated in is perfect for these kind of storms. Cold currents will come in from the west and they'll funnel through the ravines and out onto the lake and create these storms. It happens all the time. In fact, this past week, I was watching some video footage taken in 1992 of a, an intense storm that struck the Sea of Galilee. In our passage, the storm is so intense, the waves are breaking over the side of the boat. The boat is taking on water and you don't have to be a mariner to know that's not good. I remember watching a movie about a boat that took on water. I watched it on VHS in 1998. That boat sunk. What's going to happen to this boat? The boat's taking on water, and you know what? This storm and what's happening right now in the lives of the disciples is a great metaphor for life. In life, we might be doing our thing, going about our day, and then something happens, and like I said... We're derailed. During the course of life, 
expect storms. Now, how do we do that? How are we supposed to expect storms? What do I mean by that? Do I mean we need to sit around biting our nails, scared to walk around every corner because we're not sure what's going to happen? No, that's not what I mean. When I say expect storms, what I mean is live with an understanding that you are not in control. Live with an understanding that I am not in control. What I mean is to live in a way that my hands are open to whatever God's going to do today. That's what I mean by expect storms. We live palms up. Said another way, the storms in our life to live by expecting storms is to live by faith. This is the day the Lord has made. I'm not in control, come what may. I don't know what's going to happen, but God does. Now, some storms of life are simply the result of a fallen world. You know, we, we put up with the thorns and thistles of life in a Genesis 3 world. We suffer the same way unbelievers suffer. In addition to that, though, as believers, some of the storms in life are a result of our faith. After all, Jesus said in John 16, in the world you will have tribulation. We may be picked on because we're Christians. We may be persecuted even or rejected because of our claim to Christ. Satan for sure is going to attack us in various ways to discourage and defeat us. These kinds of storms should be expected and we step into each day, palms up in faith, knowing that God is in control and I am not. So my challenge to you is twofold. Number one, don't don't be naive. Don't think in some way that you are exempt from the storms in life. You're not. You're going to face big and small things throughout your life that could derail you. And if you're not careful, could damage your faith. Don't be naive. On the other hand, don't become bitter. A lot of you out there, you're not naive because you've been hit by storms of life again and again and again. You know what I'm saying. You've experienced them and you're not naive, but maybe you're tempted toward bitterness. Perhaps you're tempted to wake up each morning wondering, what's going to go wrong today? And it's easy to get to that attitude, isn't it? It's the Eeyore complex. What's the point? It's the end of the road, and no hope of things getting any better. But that's not what we're after. We don't need to be naive, but we don't need to be bitter. Then what is the right response? I said it earlier, faith. When a storm hits, know that God is in control and somehow in his omniscience, he has a reason for this that will work out for your good. The Bible claims that. All things work together for good for those whose hope is Jesus Christ. So instead of being naive, instead of getting bitter, have faith. Life's storms, if you let them, can strengthen your faith because they teach us to let go of the tight hold that we have on ourselves and trust that God's got us. So during the course of life, expect storms. Point number two, during the storms, resist the temptation 
to accuse Jesus. During the storms, resist the temptation to accuse Jesus. So back in our story, Jesus and his disciples are sailing off to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. At some point, their boat gets hit by a great storm, and look at how the disciples respond. Verse 38, but he, Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. First, look at the disciples. Remember, these are expert fishermen. They had seen storms before, which tells us, this clues us into the fact that this was not just a normal squall. This was a storm. It was a great storm. For them to be panicked lets us know that this was dire. This was life-threatening. And that's understandable. It's understandable to see why they would be panicked. When I was in high school, my dad and I went fishing often. And one time, we were in a canoe. I have no idea why we went fishing in a canoe. I can't remember that. But we were in a canoe, and we went paddling across this lake. And all of a sudden, a wind hit us broadside. Just boom, hit the, hit the canoe. And I panicked. I mean, we had all of our fishing gear, our tackle, everything. Plus, I didn't want to you know, end up in the water. But my dad, who's always been quick on his feet, he went over intentionally. He went over and kept his hand up to hold the boat up. I was panicking. He was thinking. And that was just a strong wind. So you can imagine being out on the water, this life-threatening storm. We can understand the disciples' panic. They believe they're going to die, and they react in fear for their lives. And what do they do? Honestly, in one way, they do what they should do. They wake up Jesus. But just think about that for a second. Let's turn our attention from the disciples to Jesus, okay? Jesus is in the midst of a life-threatening storm. And he's sound asleep. How in the world is Jesus sound asleep? Well, we know from earlier in the chapter, he'd spent all day teaching. Doubtless, he was exhausted. And I think one thing that we see from this is more evidence to the humanity of Jesus. Remember, he was human and God. And we're seeing this humanity here. He got tired, he got hungry. But let's take a step back and ask the question, how tired would you have to be to sleep through such a storm? The boat is rocking, water's coming in, the wind is howling, perhaps there's even lightning. And he's sound asleep. And it's not like he's below deck. He's out on this boat, sitting on a cushion, asleep. How, does he, how can he do this? Well, I think there's something else going on here. See, Jesus' rest is contrasted with the disciples' panic. The disciples are panicking. Jesus is at peace. Why? Because Jesus' trust in his Father never faltered. Jesus, who was always perfectly trusting God, is able to sleep through a major storm because he knows everything's going to be all right. You know, it's interesting. Scripture tells us that if we keep God's commandments, it positively affects our sleep. Did you know that? If we keep God's commandments, it positively affects our sleep. Leviticus 26.6 reads that if the Israelites walk in God's statutes and observe his commands, it says, I will give peace in the land and you shall lie down and none shall make you afraid. Proverbs 3 verses 21-24 read, My son... 
Do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, and they will be life for your soul, an adornment for your neck, and you will walk on your way securely, and your foot will not stumble if you lie down. You will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Obedience leads to peace. And when we're at peace with Jesus, we're able to rest. Jesus, being at perfect peace with his Father, rested even in the midst of a tumultuous storm. That's the level of trust that Jesus had, and that's the level of trust we should aspire to. The disciples, on the other hand, they wake him, and look what they say. They say, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, there's a bit of a rebuke in that. This actually calls back to the story of Jonah when the captain of the ship wakes Jonah and said, what are you doing sleeping? They're actually, in a sense, blaming or even accusing Jesus. How could you be sleeping at a time like this? Don't you care? You know what's ironic here? Jesus slept during an intense, life-threatening storm that scared and troubled his disciples. Later, his disciples will sleep while Jesus is deeply troubled by the coming cross. See, the disciples here are showing their lack of faith. They remark to Jesus, like I said, it's a, bit in a, it's a bit of a rebuke, and in effect, they're accusing him, don't you care? But let's be honest. Are we any different? We do this too, don't we? You know, something crazy happens, and we cry out, Lord, help! And is that wrong? No. Turning to the Lord is never wrong. But it was their attitude. See, their attitude was not one of mere petition, but one of accusation. Do you not care that we are perishing? Have you ever cried out, why God? Why are you doing this? You could stop this at any moment. And maybe those weren't your words, but maybe that was your attitude. This is our natural response. We blame others, we blame God. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3, the man blamed the woman and he also blamed God. And in fact, every time we lack trust in God, what we're really doing is we're blaming him. We're failing to believe or trust in him. Let's take an example. Take discontentment. Have you ever found yourself discontent with your life? What is that? A lack of gratitude for all God has done? Absolutely, yes, but it's deeper than that. It's more than just a lack of gratitude. It's a failure to believe in the truth that God gives good gifts. When I am discontent, I am not believing in the truth of Scripture that everything I have is a good gift from God. I want more. I want difference. And when our attitude is one of accusation, what we're really saying is, God, you are not fill in the blank. You are not good. You are not faithful. You are not loving. You are not listening. But you see, in accusing God, what we're really doing is displaying our own lack of faith. The disciples cry out to Jesus, don't you care that we're perishing and the amazing thing is, even with the accusation, what does Jesus do? Let's find out. Read verse 39. 
And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the sea and said, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. First, Jesus rebukes the wind. That word for rebuke has the idea of a warning, like a parent warning a child that they better stop. But then Jesus says, peace be still. And that word for be still, we've seen that before. It's the same word that we see in chapter one when Jesus rebuked the demon. It means to muzzle, put a sock in it, hush. And what happens? Silence. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. That word great is the same word that described the storm. Just as there was a great storm, now there's a great calm. The wind, the sea, just stopped. It wasn't gradual. It wasn't coming down to a rest. It was big. And then it was silent. Charles Spurgeon, preaching on this text, says this, there was no trace of storm another moment after he had been aroused. The most blustering and the conflicting winds slept like a babe in its mother's bosom. The waves were as marble. Here's your third point this morning. During the storms, Turn to Jesus in faith. In the peace that follows on the boat, Jesus speaks. He turns to the disciples in verse 40 and he says to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Everything they've been through, every miracle they've witnessed, every word they just heard about the kingdom of God, and still they struggle. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? What a question. Let's apply that to ourselves. Are we still so afraid? Do we still have no faith? Everything we've been through, everything we've seen God do in our lives, and still we struggle. We fear. What is it that we fear? Well, there's nothing like a quick Google search to tell you. Here's a list of top 10 things that people fear. Change, loneliness, failure, rejection uncertainty, bad things happening, getting hurt, being judged, loss of freedom. Any of these sound familiar? But you know, for, Christian, for Christians, that list expands. Look at this. Christians fear things like sin, in addition to what we just read. Sin, suffering, Satan, witnessing, Serving, any of these sound familiar? You need not be afraid, Christian. You need not be afraid of sin. 
because there is no condemnation. You need not be afraid of man, for the Lord is on my side. I will not fear what can man do to me. You need not fear the world, for he has overcome the world. You need not fear the enemy, for the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. You need not fear because God is in control. Then is there an appropriate place for fear? You know, there is. Some people say the only thing you should fear is fear itself. I disagree. Verse 41. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And it's interesting, in this short little passage, there are three greats. We have a great storm. We have a great calm, and then we have a great fear. The fear of the disciples shifts from the storm to Jesus, and that's appropriate. We are to reverently fear the Lord. I've got some scripture for you. Psalm 128.4, Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. Proverbs 23, 17, let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. 1 Samuel 12, 24, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. Fear the Lord. What do I mean by that? It carries, that word fear carries the idea of reverence. It's appropriate to fear the Lord. Oswald Chambers says this, the remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. The disciples had the appropriate response of fear now directed toward Jesus, not their situation. And look at the questions they ask. Who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. What's going on there? They'd just seen a bunch of miracles. They've been with Jesus for some time now, but they had never seen anyone control the weather. This is a next level power. It's interesting. In first century Jewish thinking, they believed angels controlled the elements. That's what they believed. But every Jew also knew that angels answered to God. So this act that Jesus did is an epic gesture of his identity. He is divine. See, the disciples, they're not really saying, who is this guy? They're not really saying, we don't know this person. That's not what they're saying when they say, who is this? It's more of a rhetorical question. In 1989, a movie came out that changed my life, starring Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholson. It was called Batman. In that movie, in the Bruce Wayne manner, 
He has a big party, and there's a couple of guests that go wandering through the manor looking at all the decor and the different collections that Bruce Wayne, the billionaire, has. And at one point, one of the guests says, who is this guy? And he's not saying who's Bruce Wayne. He knows who Bruce Wayne is. What he's saying is there's more to this guy than meets the eye. And that's what the disciples are saying here. There's more to this person than meets the eye. During the storms, turn to Jesus in faith. Now, what is faith? That's one of those Christian words we like to throw around. Think of faith as this. It's confidence. It's commitment. John MacArthur defines faith like this. It's believing in God against the world, against what is tangible, against what is obvious. Take it a step further. It's rejecting our senses for the sake of our hope. It's being able to say, Jesus, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what's going to happen. Everything in me is screaming to be afraid, but instead I'm going to trust you. I release my need to be in control. I release my desire to know the future. I release whatever rights I think I should have, and I simply trust you. That's faith. How does faith apply to the storms you're facing right now? Whatever you're facing, God's got you. How does the kingdom of God undo the storms that we face today? Well, let me be honest. It doesn't always undo the storm. But it does call us to trust Jesus through the storm. Does Jesus suddenly stop the storms in our life when we turn to him in faith? Sometimes. Rarely. Most times, He carries us through the storm. See, the kingdom of God here is changing us. The great change is not always a change in the storm, but a change in the people. See, having faith is not thinking, if I trust God, he will change my situation. No, having faith is thinking, I want God to carry me through this situation as he changes me. The storm will stop when God's ready for it to stop. In the meantime, he's using it to change. Now, how do we get to the point where we can respond with that kind of faith? By recognizing our Savior has already faced the greatest storm. He faced the storm of God's wrath, a storm that would have obliterated you and I. He faced separation from the Father who turned his face away from the Son. And ironically, when that happened, darkness hid the Son. The earth shook. Rocks split. Saints rose from the dead. The veil was torn in two. That's a storm. And now, for those who believe in Jesus, nothing can separate you from the love of God. You want to know how to weather the storms of life? 
You want to know how to have faith instead of fear? Recognize that your Savior has already weathered the greatest storm. And you can trust him with the small storms in your life because he's faced the great storm and he was victorious. Let's pray. Jesus, calmer of storms, carrier of us through the storms, Thank you for going to the cross. Thank you for facing the greatest storm, the storm of God's wrath. Thank you for taking that upon your shoulders so that those who trust in you will never face the wrath of God. But Lord, like your disciples, we still fear the small storms that assail us every day. Help us. Lead us from fear to faith. Keep our hearts from accusing you of causing the storms in our lives and instead let us embrace you by faith. You've already got this figured out. Grant us your peace and help us to honestly say Jesus is in control. Come what may. We pray this in the amazing name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said Amen.